This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. I want to say a special thanks to several people who shared my podcast recently on social media. Thanks to Bookstagrammers at K2Reader, at Kristen's Reading Nook, and at One of a Kindle for sharing episodes in their stories and on their posts. Word of mouth is really helping me grow the show. Today, I am chatting with Elizabeth Barnhill about our favorite books of summer 2021. Elizabeth is the adult book buyer for the independent bookstore in Waco, Texas, called Fabled Bookshop and Cafe. She graduated from Baylor University and worked for 20 years as a speech pathologist before turning her lifelong passion of reading and books into her dream job when Fable opened in 2019. Elizabeth spends her days reading as many upcoming releases as possible and hosting events at Fabled. You can find her on Bookstagram at at Waco Reads. I had such great feedback on my last episode with Elizabeth, so she's going to be dropping in periodically to chat books with me. Today, we're talking about our favorite summer reads, and next episode, which will air in early July, we're going to talk about our favorite books from the first half of 2021. I hope you enjoy our conversation. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Welcome, Elizabeth. I am so glad you were back on the Thoughts from a Page podcast to talk books again. I'm so happy to be here, Cindy. Happy summer. I know. Happy summer to you, too. How's everything going in Waco? We are slowly kind of getting back to normal, whatever normal is. We feel like there's sort of a new lease on life and starting to have some more in-person events. So it seems like we're starting to uh, see the light at the end of the tunnel. That is such great news. I feel like it's the same way here, that things are definitely opening up more. People are feeling more comfortable being out and about, and and there are more in-person events, books and otherwise. Exactly. Today, you're coming on so that we can talk about summer reads, and we decided to target books coming out between May and August, and each of us is going to talk about seven that we really liked and three that we're looking forward to. So before we start, why don't we talk a little bit about how you go about your reading generally? I saw a post of yours recently that sounded like you maybe kind of target almost seasonally. You mentioned you were done with summer and you're going to start fall. So how do you organize your reading for the bookstore? Well, somehow for me, I... I feel like the year is divided up into thirds. I've got 
kind of the beginning of the year till end of April. And then that's sort of the winter spring. And then now we're in the summer months, but I've already finished reading summer. And now I'm starting to look at fall books. So that would be more September through December. And I go through the publisher catalogs. And typically what I've noticed, there's about 50 books in each catalog that I can hardly wait to read. So I have my list. I've I've just really finished all of my summer books that I was very excited about reading. And I love to check things off lists. So I've got that whole list completely checked off. It's a great feeling. And now I've got 50 new books that I'm looking at for the fall. And wow, it's going to be a great fall. Well, I am excited to talk about fall because you and I have already spoken a little bit about fall. And we will do a much more in-depth discussion like this one for fall. But just talk a little bit about what fall 2021 looks like. It's, it's almost unbelievable the embarrassment of riches that is coming our way. So Anthony Doerr uh, is going to have a new book. I haven't started it yet, but it looks like it's going to be great. Of course, he wrote All the Light We Cannot See. I just today received an ARC for the Lincoln Highway by Amar Tolls, who wrote Gentleman in Moscow. Oh, I'm so jealous. Yes, I'm very excited about that. There's a new Rick Bragg book. Rick Bragg is one of my all-time favorite Southern authors. Mine too. He's written a book about a dog, and I have been assured the dog does not die in the end. So we are good to go. Oh, that is good. What else? There's I, I don't know. if you, Did you ever read An Elderly Lady is up to no good. Is that Helene Turston or no? Yes. Very funny book about a murdering octogenarian. So the second one is coming out, An Elderly Lady Must Not Be Crossed. So very excited about that one. Um, what else? Colson Whitehead, new book, The Harlem Shuffle. I've got that ready to go. And one of my favorite books last year was The Thursday Murder Club. So the second one of second installment of the Thursday Murder Club comes out this fall as well. So, oh, I guess Patty Callahan, Once Upon a Wardrobe, all about the the line, the witch in the wardrobe, kind of a re, I guess a retelling of that. Do you, is that correct? I think I think it is. I looked at the back of it when it came here because I, I love the line, the witch in the wardrobe, and mm-hmm. I think it's something about finding a letter related to it or something. So I'm not sure it's a retelling so much as how the story came about, but I'm not exactly sure. Okay. Well, that one looks great. Another one, one of my all-time favorites that I love to recommend is The Winter Sea by Susanna Kersley. And that is all about Slane's Castle. So this is maybe, I think it's the third installment. It may be a prequel to The Winter Sea called The Vanished Days. So I've got a lot of books to go through this summer, and I can hardly wait. I do my reading a little bit differently. I try to do what you do. But then if something comes to me that I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't wait, I end up putting it right in front of everything. So I loved the first Richard Osman. So as soon as I got the NetGalley widget, I read the second one and it is so good. So I thought it was a ton of fun, but I've kind of put everything else aside for the fall and I'm working through the rest of my summer and podcast interview books and things like that. But I just couldn't put that one aside. I had to read it quickly. Yeah, I've been staring at it. I actually started it last night because I have been just eagerly anticipating the moment where I could start my fall books. So, so far it's great. And I love the main character, Elizabeth, who reminds me of Angela Lansbury from Murder, She Wrote. So I I can hardly wait to see what Elizabeth is up to in her latest book. Yeah. And this is a more personal story for her. That's all I'll say. But, um, but it's really good. And I'm excited about the Colson Whitehead too. That Harlem Shuffle sounds really good. Yeah. I can, I just can't wait to dig in. 
So on your 50 books, do you make it through all 50 or do you DNF some of them? How does that work for you generally? I am very, very quick to to DNF. Maybe maybe too quick sometimes, but I can tell fairly quickly if I'm going to love a book or if it's one that I'm going to be able to recommend. And what I'm always looking for is a book that, you know, it's a diamond in the rough or a debut novel. But if I'm having a really hard time getting into a book, I think, gosh, I think my customers are going to have a really hard time getting into this as well. And there's also books that the new Jodi Picoult book is coming out. I I may not read that one because I know she's got a huge fan base and people who love her books will go ahead and read her books. So I'm looking for the other ones that are maybe a little bit lesser known. Yeah, so I I do DNF quite a few books. I'm very I'm very organized. I have a way of doing this where I usually can read 12 books start to finish in a month. Now there's also some DNFs along the way, but that's kind of how I organize my time with reading. You are so organized. Well, I'm working on that. After I interviewed Katie and Des, the bookstagrammers, Katie mm-hmm. had so many great ideas for organizations. I have been slowly implementing some of her ideas, but I may have to target something like yours too and just know, okay, I've got this many books a month I need to get through. And I DNF a lot too. So that that makes a difference because all of a sudden I'll be like, oh, I have more time than I thought I did because I'm only going to read 50 pages of this one. Right. You know, I think it's the, I, I am a, a former speech therapist and I'm used to long-term goals and short-term goals. So my long-term goal is all these, uh, all 50 books. But I like to chunk it up where maybe I'll do four at a time where I know one of these four I'm going to start. I'm not going to go to the next ones until I'm finished with these four or five, depending. And yeah, that's how I do it. And it so far, it's worked. It sounds like it works very well. I'm a much more of a mood reader. So I'm like, okay, what do I feel like right now? And so then I end up jumping around. But I mean, as long as I get a book read by the time I'm interviewing the author, I'm set. But sometimes I definitely am much more all over the place. Well, the nice thing is it works. Everyone has their own own system and it works for all of us who love to read. Absolutely. And as long as we get the books read, I guess that's the important part. One more question before we start. Tell me how you define what type of books go on your summer list. Like what constitutes a summer read or beach read for you? You know, that's a really good question. A lot of people think of Ellen Hildebrand, anything that's pastel with a woman's back at a beach is a beach read. But Truly, any book you bring to the beach is a beach read, and people have different views of that. So when I was younger, I always wanted to read a really long book in the summertime. That was a, my idea of a good time in high school was to find an eight or 900 page book to read every summer. So that's a lot of people do that. In fact, we have a display at the store right now that is uh, summer doorstops, and they're very, very long books, and we keep selling them because a lot of people enjoy doing that in the summer. Some people love a true beach read where it's set on a vacation. And and again, pastel or a romance, very light books. And other people enjoy thrillers, a good mystery to keep them engaged. So I think mostly when I think of beach reads or summer reads, they're paperbacks and something that can easily, you can throw in a weekend bag. What do you think? I know that's an interesting thought. I guess I hadn't really thought about the paperback part of it before, but it's a very good idea. But I'm the same way as you. I don't necessarily read some of the lighter books a lot. So for me, a beach read or a summer read is anything that's going to keep me engaged. Like if I'm sitting by the pool or I'm sitting at the beach or we go to the mountains a lot, 
something that just keeps me turning the pages and I can just sit there and enjoy it. So it's probably really not that different than anything else during the rest of the year. It's just books that I really like that I recommend to people. Yeah, And a lot of people even like reading books set in the wintertime in the summer, <laughs> especially for us Texans who get very hot. So it's fun kind of reading a book where people are lost in a snowstorm in August. So I'm thinking of a display of that too. We, we may have to do that this summer at Fabled. You should do that toward the end of the summer, like late July, early August, when people are tired of the heat. <laughs> yes. Take you away. I'm, I'm kind of ready for the heat now. It's been raining nonstop for a month. So I'm, I know I'll, I'll be missing it in a couple of months, but right now I'm, I'm ready for a little bit of the heat. And the sun. I feel like here we've been under flash flood warnings for like a week and a half. Yeah, it's, it's time to, to move on. Well, let's dive in to the meat of our discussion. I thought we might alternate. So if you want to start, you can tell me your first one and then I'll do mine and we'll just go back and forth. Does that sound good? Sounds good to me. Let's do it. All right. You're up. Okay. So my first recommendation is The Last Thing I Told You by Laura Dave. I picked this book up maybe a couple of months ago because I loved her book, 800 Grapes. It was set in California at a winery. And I was very intrigued by this one because it is primarily set in Austin, Texas, which is kind of unusual. So everywhere she talks in the book, I, I could picture where she was. And that was that was fun. But our main character is Hannah. She marries later in life to a man named Owen. Owen has a 16-year-old who is less than kind to her stepmother, Hannah. One day, Owen disappears and is able to smuggle a note to Hannah. It simply says, protect her. So Hannah knows immediately that he's talking about his stepdaughter. And so the rest of the book is her trying to figure out what has happened to Owen while also protecting her stepdaughter and making peace with her. So I initially just thought, oh, this is going to be just a, a fun, light thriller but it was really, there was a whole lot of meat to it. I have a lot of friends who are stepmothers and they really appreciated how Dave handled the stepmother, stepdaughter relationship. So it wasn't like one of them was vilified and they really were trying to work together. So there's, there's a whole lot of substance to this book while also going down very easy. And of course, this book now, I'm, I was kind of surprised at but it has been everywhere. I think it was a, a book of the month club pick, maybe a, a Reese pick, but I will say it is Elizabeth approved. It's not <laughs> just um, another little goofy thriller. So I, I loved this book. I think Reese did select it as her pick for May. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I, really I found a book no one is going to know about and I was very wrong. So that's hilarious. You're like, it was my diamond in the rough, but it really isn't in the end. Yes, now <laughs> it's just a shining, sparkly diamond for everybody. Exactly. Well, my first one is The Personal Librarian by Marie Benedict and Victoria Christopher Murray. So you know how much I love historical fiction. And I was dying to read this book ever since Marie told me about it when I interviewed her for her Agatha Christie book in December. And so this is about Belle DaCosta Green, who becomes the librarian for J.P. Morgan in what is the Pierpont Morgan Library, later becomes the Morgan Library. And she is Black, but she passes as white. And it's written as her diary. So it's diary entries as she goes along, kind of talking about her life and how she got to be the librarian and what it's like passing. And the really cool thing about it is written by Marie Benedict, who's white, and Victoria Christopher Murray, who's black. And they wrote together, and they both write these 
wonderful letters at the beginning of the book talking about how they decided to write this story together and everything they learned from each other and from telling Belle's story. And I just loved it. I think I loved her story. I feel like it's very timely understanding, you know, something that happened so, I mean, many years ago, I think the late 1800s into the early 19, 1910s, I think. But parts of it just sort of seemed like they could take place today in terms of what's happening in the world. And then also just listening to her talk about books and all the different things that J.P. Morgan wanted to acquire for his collection. And I just loved that. I just, anybody who loves books and libraries and really reading is going to just love that aspect of the story. And I just thought it was so well done. Well, you're going to laugh because that was my second choice. (laughs) Really? (laughs) And I say second choice. I'm just doing this in order. I actually, the blurb that I wrote was picked up by the Indie Next catalog. One of the things I loved about it was I love a book where I'm reading, but I've got my phone next to me and I'm Googling the entire time. There was so much I learned. This was a great historical fiction, but it's not a time frame that we're used to learning about or reading about. It's not World War II. It's not It's not during a war. And I really enjoy getting to learn more about J.P. Morgan. I And I agree with you. It was just a very, very well done historical fiction that is very timely. So yay us. And it comes out, I think, June 29th. The other thing that was very cool about her story was her father, Richard Greener, who was the first African-American man to graduate from Harvard. So it was really interesting that her father is the first Black man to graduate from Harvard, and then she ends up passing. I just thought it kind of was reflective of the time. And they talk about that in their notes and in her, you know, in her diary, they incorporate into the story. But after the Civil War, how much backlash there was with Jim Crow and all of that. So I just, like you said, it was a, a focus on a different time period, no war, different era, different people. And I just thought it was fabulous. Yes, I think there's really a push right now to find more invisible women in history and, and shine some light on them. And I can't believe I've never heard the story before. So I'm grateful for, especially women, women authors looking for these maybe obscure or women we've never heard of, and we are learning more about them. I'm thankful for that. I agree. And I like these writing partnerships. I mean, I think it's really interesting to see different people writing together and what they each bring to the table. And so Victoria talks in her notes about how hard it was for her to use the florally language of the early 1900s because she normally writes contemporary fiction. So she'd be like, dude, get over here. And then Marie would have to take that language and you know translate <laughs> it into what they would have said in the 1910s. And so some of that was really entertaining too. Yes, I, I definitely agree with you and, and can't wait to sell this at our store. I agree. I think it will be a big seller. All right. Well, my next one's actually nonfiction. And it's called Mergers and Acquisitions by Kate Doty. And it came out in May. It's already out. She wrote for the New York Times wedding pages for years. And so this is a memoir that encapsulates the time that she was at the New York Times writing in the wedding pages. But also then she weaves in her own love story and how she was struggling in her 20s and trying to figure out who she was and what kind of relationship she wanted. And couldn't quite find it. And so then she starts working at the New York Times and ends up meeting her husband also at the New York Times. But it took a very long time to realize that, that he, you know, she wanted him to be her husband. So I, I loved her personal story. And I really loved all of the New York Times anecdotes about the different people that they had to call and inquire about all the details that would go in the wedding announcements and how she could eventually predict whether a relationship would last or not. And 
just some of the people she encountered. I thought it was a really fun read. That sounds really good. I don't think I've heard of that one. Well, I saw it on a list only maybe a month ago. I hadn't seen anything about it. And then it was on somebody's summer list. And I was like, well, that looks really good. And it's got this beautiful cover. I emailed and you know, said, I'd love a copy and I'd love to interview Kate. And so I have interviewed her. And actually, her, her interview airs tomorrow on the podcast. So by the time this airs, her episode will have aired. But it was really is just a fascinating glimpse into something I didn't know very much about. Yeah, I think I'll be adding that to my list. So I, I knew that would happen. And I'm sure it'll be the same way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So my next one is The Ride of Her Life by Elizabeth Letts. And I was so excited to pick this one up. She wrote Finding Dorothy, which was one of my favorite books several years ago. So many people know that one of my favorite things to read about are curmudgeons, but mostly we find this in fiction. Well, this is a nonfiction curmudgeon story, and I am here for it. So this is the story of 63-year-old Annie Wilkins, who is a woman who lives in Maine, and she has just received devastating news. She had pneumonia, and it was so severe that her doctor, this is, and this takes place in the 1950s. Uh, but her doctor tells her, you may have two years to live, but only if you really take it easy. And while she's in the hospital, she loses her family farm due to back taxes. So she's just in a world of hurt. Well, Annie has decided that she is not going to rest. She's going to live her best life and has always wanted to see California. So she buys a, and this is a true story. She buys a, an old horse and she takes off with a backpack, basically, from Maine and travels 4,000 miles to California on horseback with her dog. And I mean, this is just, I, I adored it. So this, you find Annie really has to rely on the kindness of strangers to get by. She meets fascinating people. She meets famous people. Andrew Wyeth actually met her at one point and oh, wow. painted her painted her horse's picture. Oh, cool. And so and over time, she became semi-famous. People would be so excited if she came to their town. And I just think this, this old woman, she's not that old, but I guess in the 1950s, a 63-year-old woman would be considered elderly, did not have a phone, did not have Google Maps, did not have radar, for for thunderstorms or for snowstorms and she just wanted to do this and she actually did. So I I just loved it. This may be maybe my favorite one on the list. But I just I love the reminiscing of the 1950s Americana and the power of the human spirit and dog spirit and horse spirit. <laughs> and horse spirit. <laughs> well, I was out of town last week and I just got back on Saturday and had a stack of books and that was one of them. So I can't wait to read it. I'm so happy to hear that you liked it that much. It was fabulous. Five stars. Okay, good. Well, then I'm going to move it up the list. So my next one is, I think, kind of a random selection for me because we, I think we've talked thrillers before, but some thrillers do great with me and some don't do so well. But I absolutely loved this one. It's Hostage by Claire McIntosh. I've read it too. It's a I knew you had. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, from the second I started it till the very end, and I just absolutely love the ending. There's really almost two endings. There's like one ending where you think it's done, and then there's one more thing, and you're like, oh, that is so cool. So I just thought it was amazing. So it has to do with inaugural flight from London to Sydney, the longest flight that will be a passenger flight, 20 hours. 
and a flight attendant and her husband have, are kind of having marital trouble and are probably in the process of separating. And they have adopted a daughter several years back, and they got her when she was around one. And she's, I think, five or six now and has a, you know some attachment issues. And it's not been an easy road for them with the adoption and their daughter and their marriage. And so she ends up as one of the flight attendants on this inaugural flight. And about, I can't remember how many hours in, she gets a note, but it's, it's a anonymous. So she has no idea who it's from, but somebody on the plane saying that if, they, if she doesn't follow their instructions, her husband and daughter will be killed. So I thought Claire just did the most amazing job of putting the reader into, I can't even think of what, what her name is now, oh, Mina, into Mina's shoes and what it would be like if you don't know who it is that sent you the note. You don't know what is going on. You can't reach your husband and daughter because you're you know, in the sky. I think she does try to reach them at some point, but can't. And so I just thought it was amazing. And then she also uses multiple perspectives. She uses Mina and she uses, I think, the husband, but she also uses various passengers. And you don't know whether the passengers are just random passengers or whether they're part of this hostage taking, you know, overtaking of the plane. And I just thought she developed the story so well, and I just loved every page of it. Well, I didn't pick this one because I had a feeling that you might. <laughs> but I will say, just to up the terror, Auntie, I actually read this book on a plane. Oh my gosh, recently. I can't imagine. I know. I just thought I'm just. I feel like I'm. I feel like scaring myself. So I, I will do this. But Claire McIntosh is great. She is a thriller slash mystery author who maybe is a little under the radar. But I love recommending her books because they're so well done. I just really loved it. Some thrillers work for me and some don't, but I thought this one did really well. And the other thing I was actually going to say about this one, because I interviewed her for my podcast, but the book doesn't come out till June 22nd, so I won't air till that date. But when I went on Goodreads, I read the book, but I always check out the Goodreads reviews before I interview authors, just in case there's something I hadn't come across before. There are so many spoilers in the reviews. And mm. so I want to tell anybody who's listening who hasn't looked up the book, don't look up anything about it. Just get it and read it. Some of the things will be spoiled that shouldn't be based on people's reviews. That's been happening a lot lately. I, I would recommend almost not ever reading the, the Goodreads <laughs> reviews. Just in case, especially with a thriller, because they're hard. Thrillers are hard to describe without giving anything away. Exactly. And I feel like her book, like as I was reading, I was going the whole time, oh, I wonder what the rationale is and what they're doing. And I think it's fascinating to have that unfold as you're reading. But if you've already read Goodreads, then that will not happen. Right. So I was like, read it without looking into it. But you're right. I mean, most of the time, that's good advice anyway. But in some stories, like maybe the Belle de Costa Green story, it won't matter so much. But in this one, I think it would definitely take away some of the fun. For sure. All right. So my next one is uh, talking about thrillers. One of my all-time favorite thriller writers is Riley Sager, and he has a new one coming out July the 6th. I think it's July the 6th as of today's airing. And it is called Survive the Night. Now, how creepy is it? Because I do love his books, but I'm worried this one is too creepy for me. Well, I, okay, so I think the first half of the book is maybe one of the creepiest. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's just why I haven't picked it up because I do. I love him and I love his books, but I'm thinking, I might, I don't know if I'll sleep if I read that book. Um, hmm. I would say you probably wouldn't uh, take a ride with a stranger in the middle of the <laughs> night after reading this book. Well, I certainly don't plan to do that anyway. But okay, so I'm sorry. You go ahead and tell how good it is. I just and I will listen and debate whether I can pick it up. Okay, so the setting is 1991. 
on a college campus, and our main character is Charlie Jordan. And she is studying film noir. She's really into old Hollywood, sort of the Alfred Hitchcock. Almost reminded me of Women in the Window when she talks so much about film noir. Right. Well, Charlie's best friend in college has just been murdered by a serial killer targeting these college students. And she has just been traumatized by the ordeal and decides she can no longer stay at her college. She finds a ride home through a message board with a man named Josh Baxter. She gets in the car and he's going to, he's got a little further to go, but he doesn't mind taking her to her hometown. And so they start this drive and all of a sudden you feel this creepy, ominous feeling. Josh Baxter is not who he seems to be. You know, I think I was had PTSD as a child watching Silence of the Lambs, that scene in the car. So you've got this, this scene where Charlie is starting to realize there's a really good chance that Josh Baxter is the serial killer who just killed my friend. That's not giving anything away. Right. But- the again, I think this the first half of the book, while they are in the car together, makes the entire book worth it. The ending maybe isn't the strongest ending, but it's not not enough to say don't don't read this book. I I just think he is such a good thriller writer. I love the the nineteen nineties uh, nostalgia. Interestingly, and, and I'm sure you've heard this too, but so many authors like to set their books in the 1990s because it's recent enough, but we don't have cell, cell phones. phones. <laughs> right. So Charlie can't text 911 from a cell phone. She's having to look for a payphone when they stop somewhere. Anyway, that's it was it was a really really great thriller. Maybe my favorite thriller of the summer, and it comes out July the sixth. Okay, good. That's good to hear. I love his books. My favorite is still The Last Time I Lied. I just loved the camp setting and the resolution of that story. I still recommend it to people all the time. But I, and this one looks good, but I just, I don't know. I am such a wimp. But I keep hearing how good it is. That's, it's good. I loved Home Before Dark last year. Me too. The, the Final Girls. I mean, I, I just always look forward to his book every year. I agree. So my next one is The Husbands by Chandler Baker, who is actually a Texas author. She lives in Austin. And her first book, The Whisper Network, was a Reese pick. And The Husbands comes out in August. I feel like it's early August, but it's sometime in August. And it has to do with a woman. It, 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 it's a topic that I think will resonate with many people our age, a little younger, but you know, women married, trying to work, a lot of times also trying to raise children, and just how much, how much progress has been made, but how much is still falls on the shoulders of women. And so I just love that because she really does a deep dive into what it's like to be a female these days. And you're trying to do the best at everything you have in front of you, but it's just not possible. And so you have to figure out, okay, where can things slide a little bit? And why am I not getting more help from my husband? And why do, even if he'll help, why do I always have to ask for him to help? And it was just really very, very thought provoking and interesting. And I, I like the story. It's definitely, not like you're not reading it thinking this is really going to happen kind of story, but I still really loved it. And I thought her points were very good. And I really liked the ending. Sounds great. Yeah, no, it's definitely it's very thought provoking. And it has to do with this woman who they're living in Austin, they want to move out um, of the city a little bit to have more land, have a little more space. She's pregnant with their second child. 
and they are looking in this neighborhood and she's like, something is maybe not totally right in this neighborhood and she can't quite put her finger on it. And the further she gets drawn in, the more she can't quite figure out what's happening and whether she's being irrational or whether there's something strange going on. And I just thought it was very fun. It's definitely a good escapist read. It's definitely a summer book. Gotcha. Yeah, that seems like it's a big genre these days as well. Maybe it's kind of Celestine, Big Little Lies, and even The Good Neighborhood. Is it kind of Stepford wifey a little bit? Yes, exactly. But the flip side of it, kind of that the husbands are the part of that. But yes, it is like oh, that. Okay. Yeah. So it's 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 definitely clever and it will really make you think. Very good. Okay. My next one is Haven Point by Virginia Hume. This is actually written by the daughter of Britt Hume, who's a I think he's he's been on Fox News. He's a, a TV correspondent. But this is my favorite sort of beach read. It's set in New England on the windswept coast of Maine on a little a little coastal town called Haven Point. And I think this one may be billed as historical fiction, but I don't really I don't think it really fits the genre very well. But uh, the scope of the story is 70 years and three generations of women primarily told through the lens of the grandmother and the granddaughter. My favorite parts of the book are probably the grandmother sections. The grandmother's name is Marin, and she was a beautiful nurse from Minnesota who winds up at Walter Reed Hospital during World War II. And while she's there, she meets a devastatingly handsome man, New England blue blood, and he falls madly in love with her and marries her. And he takes her home to his summer home in Haven Point. And there Marin is kind of met with jealousy. A lot of the women at Haven Point were in love with her husband and classism, but she was also met with kindness and some loneliness. There's maybe some trigger warnings for alcohol abuse. There's a, someone who really struggles with that in the book. Um, but it's told in, in in the 1940s and then in the 1970s during the Vietnam era and in 2008. Uh, and in 2008, we meet Skye, her granddaughter, who uh, is kind of dealing with the demise and death of her mother, who's Marin's daughter. And the the mother, the, the middle generation, lived through a horrible tragedy that occurred on Haven Point and vowed never to return. So this, the book, I would say is there's a little romance, there's a little American history, an exploration into belonging, who belongs where, and a beautiful family drama. I really, really, I read this book in a day, and it's one that I think is sort of a diamond in the rough. We'll see. It's a debut author, and I can't wait to sell it. I think it's out June 8th. I think you texted me about that one. And then after you texted me how much you liked it, I started seeing it places. So I need to try to track it down. It sounds really good. And it's got a beautiful cover. Yes, I was I was pleasantly surprised to see that the modern Mrs. Darcy picked it for her summer reading guide as well. I, I, I think it's just a, a really, really good, definite the definition of a good summer read. Okay, good. I need to add that to my list. So my next one is probably my favorite book I have read so far this year. And it's Songs in Ursa Major by Emma Brody. Have you read it? I did. Did you like it? I did like it. I think you and I spoke a little bit about it when I had picked up another book that was one of these, somebody recommended it, it's like Daisy Jones kind of thing. You mentioned this one, and so I picked it up, and then I was on a book talk. They recommended it there, and I didn't realize it was loosely based on James Taylor and Joni Mitchell's relationship. So once I heard that, I picked it up, and I literally read it in a day. 
I love that era of music. I love, I love James Taylor. I like Joni Mitchell. So I was very excited to read it. And I just thought it was fantastic. Like I said, it's probably my favorite book I have read so far this year. That's high praise. But it's so it involves, uh, I can't remember the names of the characters in the book, but the male that is, you know, the James Taylor person is supposed to be performing at a festival in Massachusetts and he has a bad motorcycle accident. And so the woman is the leader of another band and the band steps in and performs. And then they slowly kind of get picked up and start trying to, you know, have a record deal and play different places. Meantime, that those two develop a relationship. And so the Joni Mitchell character is really wanting to stay true to her roots and her music and doesn't always play the game, thinks she's doing the right thing, but over time realizes that maybe things she should have done certain things differently. And so I just love, like I said, love that era of music so much. And I just thought it was really fun to read about them. And obviously it's very fictionalized. And she says at the beginning that, you know, these are not based on real people, but I think the inspiration came from their relationship. And I thought it was going to end one way. And I was like, well, okay, I guess that will be an okay ending. But it ended way better than I thought it was going to. And I just I just really loved it. I thought it was great too. I think it was kind of loosely based in Martha's Vineyard, but it's not called Martha's Vineyard. Right. And I love the main character. And again, I, I don't remember her name, but her the relationship she has with her grandmother and her aunts, I, I really loved that part of it too. I agree. And just the insight into the music industry and how they treated people and especially women. I just, I really liked the way all of that was portrayed. And and Emma Brody works in publishing. Oh, I didn't know that. But I, I just thought it was a fabulous read. Like I said, it'll definitely be in my top 10 for the year, probably one of my top one or two. Oh, wow. Great choice. All right. My next one is Lightning Strike by William Kent Kruger. This comes out August the 3rd. I would read William Kent Kruger's <laughs> grocery list. Something about his writing just calms me down. It slows my heart rate and makes me want to drink in every word, which is infuriating to me because I like to read books fast, but I cannot read him fast. Uh, Lightning Strike is no different. This book is the z- book zero in the Cork O'Connor series. So, But I don't think you have to read the series in order to enjoy this book. This book felt a little bit like Mayberry set near a in, near a, a reservation. 12-year-old Cork worships the ground his sheriff father walks on. One day, Cork and a friend are exploring the ancient forest near their home in Aurora, Minnesota, and discover what looks to be a suicide of a local Native American who Cork reveres. Things aren't what they seem, and while his dad, Liam O'Connor, searches for the truth, Cork also begins his own investigation. We find out in later books that Cork becomes the sheriff of Aurora after his father. So I think this is a great literary mystery. And I think Kruger does a great job of exploring the tension between white and Native American culture. And this one was fabulous. I love that series. And they actually just emailed me last week, the publicist, and they're sending me a copy of it. So I'm excited to read it because I really do like that series a lot. And it'll be interesting to go back in time and see Cork when he was young. It's so cute. He reminds me of Opie from the Mayberry series. <laughs> oh, good. Well, that's such an interesting analogy. So now I'm really interested to read it. <laughs> so my next one is House of Sticks. It's a memoir. So it's nonfiction by Lee Tran. Her family immigrated through American humanitarian program related to the Vietnam War. So her father had fought in the Vietnam War and was in a prison camp there for 10 years. And when he got out, 
the family applied for safe passage to the U.S. through this program and ended up in New York City. So they have an, they have an apartment that's provided for them or somebody helps them find an apartment. But then they're sort of on their own. So they have no heat. And in the first winter, and she's like three, I think, when they first come over. She has three older brothers, and then she's the youngest. And so nobody speaks English, and their heat doesn't work. So a couple of them get frostbite, like on their oh. toes and fingers. I know it's like, it's a little grim at the beginning, but it is such a fascinating glimpse into what it is like, you know, the immigrant experience and what it was like for her when they came over. And then how her parents just had to kind of just thrown into it and had to negotiate learning a new language and a culture. And so House of Sticks is the title, which means about five different things. But one of the things was that they lived in Vietnam in a house of sticks, like in a house that literally was made of sticks. And so they're, you know, they're out, they would have all this flooding trouble and just a very different culture. And they come over to America and they're in these concrete buildings, downtown New York City, and they end up connected up with this sweatshop person who brings them all of these things to sew. So all four kids and the parents sew like round the clock and barely get paid anything. And it, it was a fascinating and depressing early on glimpse into people sometimes when they come over and trying to kind of find their footing. Now, eventually she ends up going to Columbia. So she has, a, you know, she is a long road and ends up obviously writing this beautiful book. It was a very great way to understand what it is like sometimes for people who are coming from other countries and not bringing a lot with them and what it's like to try to, you know, try to fit in or try to keep some of your own cultural aspects and just what it's like to be here when you weren't necessarily from here originally. That sounds good. I've seen the cover of this and the the little girl. Uh, what is her name again? The Lee. Lee. Okay. She looks so cute on the cover of of the book and you've made me want to pick it up. It sounds it's really great. good. Yeah, it's really interesting. And her dad, because he was in this prison camp for 10 years, is just, he has more PTSD than he can deal with. So he has all sorts of anger issues. He's totally paranoid about the government. So for years, she tells him, like, I can't see, you know, like I, I have to sit in the front of the class because my vision is so bad and they would test it at school and he would not let her get glasses. He thought it was some kind of conspiracy. So literally for 10 years, she could not see. So when she eventually yeah. was in high school and was old enough that she was able to kind of do some of her own stuff and explain to people what was going on, then she did get glasses. And she literally was like, it was eye-opening, you know, because she could now see everything and understand, you know, what was around her. And it was definitely eye-opening. And she writes beautifully, which I find just amazing when English wasn't even her first language. All right. That one's going to be one to add to my TBR. All right. So my final book to recommend is Seven Days in June by Tia Williams. And I believe at this point, it's coming out June the 1st. My friend Sarah from Sarah's Bookshelves recommended this book to me. She knows I don't really read romance, but she doesn't either and thought I would enjoy this book. And I really did. Now, there are definitely some rated R scenes. So more sensitive readers, beware. Please don't tell my mother I read this book. <laughs> That's why I haven't picked it up because I keep seeing how overly steamy it is. Well, it I will say the first chapter gave me pause, um, <laughs> but it really is a whole lot more than the romance. And, and I, honestly, I don't really read a whole lot of steam and I it was not the main focus of the book. I will say if, if that's something you kind of shy away from, which I do, you can still really enjoy this book. 
Okay. So the main character is Eva, who is a romance writer and a single mother, and Shane, who is more of a highbrow literary novelist. So Eva and Shane meet at a black literary event, and we follow their romance over a seven-day period. And we find out Eva and Shane actually met as high schoolers 15 years ago and never really got over each other. So it's just happens to be serendipity that they meet up again. And the book is smart. It's hilarious. Just listening to Eva talk about her daughter and, and being a single mother. The banter is very witty. It reminds me of the banter in Beach Read. And there's also sort of a Stella gets her groove back vibe. Also, interestingly, and I really appreciate that the author gave Eva a physical ailment. She struggles with migraines and how she deals with the migraines. And Shane struggles with addiction. But the book gave me goosebumps at the end. It was, it was one I really have enjoyed. I can't wait to, to sell it at our store. Okay, good. Yeah, I, I just usually don't read Steam. And so when I kept seeing how steamy it was, I thought, well, it's probably not the book for me. But you're right. You could just zip over that part. Yeah, this was not the main focus. This is not a, you know, having to flip eight pages every <laughs> every 20. So it it just it comes up from time to time. But the the way they interact with each other is beautiful. The the writing is beautiful. It also is dealing with the publishing industry. I just thoroughly enjoyed it. Okay, good. Well, I'll add that one to my list. So my last one is Our Woman in Moscow by Beatrice Williams, which also I think comes out June 1st. And it's loosely based on the story of the Cambridge Five and the men who got high up in the British MI5 or MI6, whatever the spy agency was at the time, and then were actually selling secrets or giving secrets to the Russians, and several of them ended up defecting. A few of them are actually in the book as minor characters, but it has to do with twin sisters, one of whom marries, uh, her name's Iris, and she marries Sasha Digby. He's in the British intelligence community, but he has been leaking secrets to the Soviets. You don't know exactly what's happening as you're reading, but where it opens up is Ruth, the twin sister, has received a letter from Iris. And in 1948, Iris and her husband and three children disappeared, and no one has heard from them since. They were in London, and then they were gone. People assume that they defected to the Soviet Union, but there's been no conversation about them. People aren't sure what happened to them. They were just gone. So in 1952, Iris sends a letter to Ruth and says, I am pregnant with my fourth child. I would love it if you could come to Moscow for the birth. And so that's not an easy thing to do in 1952. So she actually gets visited by the FBI soon after who understand that maybe the Digbees are now wanting to explain where they are and what's going on. And so Ruth collaborates with the FBI and ends up heading over to Moscow to see her sister. And it unfolds from there. And it's so well done, very well written. Definitely, I think, different than the rest of Beatrice Williams' books. There's a lot of information about that era and the Soviet Union, what it would have been like for Ruth to visit, what it was like for Iris to live there. And um, there's some secrets that unfold that are just really well done. I, I really loved it. It will be in my top 10 for the year. Ooh, I've I need to pick that one up. I've seen it and I know we sell her well. People who love Beatrice Williams are very loyal. And so I will definitely want to pick that one up. So that wraps up our seven that we've each loved and read with one overlap. I thought we might have more, but that's good because it means that I now have a couple more books that I've added to my list. Yes. And of course, and I also loved Hostage, but I, I just had a strong <laughs> inclination that you were going to pick that one. So 
Yes. No, that makes sense. Well, tell me about your first one that you're looking forward to, but that you haven't read yet for summer. All right. This is Velvet Was the Night, and this is written by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. She wrote Mexican Gothic last year, and I was on team not love Mexican Gothic. Now, a lot of this could be I tried to read it in March of 2020, which we all know is a very strange month to be reading books. Um, I think that one also was not very well marketed. It was more, I think there were, people were expecting more of the Rebecca story, which really it wasn't. But I do remember not necessarily loving the book, but loving her writing style. So I'm very curious about her latest. And Velvet Was the Night takes place in Mexico City during the 1970s and I've kind of I've kind of skimmed it a little bit it looks like uh, there's a group of informants who are working against the communist party and a woman goes missing so it's a little bit of a mystery a little bit of a thriller and I'm very curious to read the rest of it I've just been seeing that lately so that that she has a new book coming out and it's got a very distinctive cover I was just going to say, whoever is doing the art for her covers needs a raise because Mexican Gothic was gorgeous. Absolutely. And this one looks so cool. These are great. So my first is Island Queen by Vanessa Riley. It's definitely high on my list and I'm interviewing her for the podcast and I've just heard nothing but great things about it and talk about another one with a stunning cover. Yes. And also I think that one would be a good one to to do for a summer doorstop because it's pretty long. It is long. That's actually one of the reasons I haven't gotten to it yet, because usually I know I don't have a big enough window to get through it before I have to get something else read. Born into slavery on the tiny Caribbean island of Montserrat, Dorothy Kerwin, called Doll, bought her freedom and that of her sister and her mother from her Irish planter father and built a legacy of wealth and power as an entrepreneur, merchant, hotelier, and planter that extended from the marketplaces and sugar plantations of Dominica and Barbados to a glittering luxury hotel in Demerara, I don't know how you say that, in Demerara, on the South American continent. So that description just sounds amazing to me, and I can't wait to get to it. This one is a beautiful cover. So my second one is A Slow Fire Burning by Paula Hawkins, who wrote Girl on the Train. A Slow Fire Burning starts with a brutal murder on a London canal boat. Laura, a likely suspect, is witnessed leaving the scene, and for a while it looks like a straightforward case. But what I wanted to explore in this book is the way that no tragedy happens in isolation. An accident in childhood can have ramifications a decade later. Trusting the wrong person at the wrong time can derail a life completely. I'm interested in the way we become the people we are, how we choose what to hold on to, and how those things can wound us. That one sounds really good, too. I need to get a copy of it and get it read. I think I may throw this one in my beach bag when I go to the beach in a couple of weeks. So my next one is uh, The Family Plot by Megan Collins. And this one sounds very intriguing, a little creepier than I normally read, but it still sounds really good. So here's the summary. At 26, Dahlia Lighthouse remains haunted by her upbringing. Raised in a secluded island mansion deep in the woods and kept isolated by her true crime-obsessed parents, she has been unable to move beyond the disappearance of her twin brother, Andy, when they were 16. After several years away and following her father's death, Dahlia returns to the house, where the family soon makes a gruesome discovery. Buried in their father's plot is another body, Andy's, his skull split open with an axe. So then they go on to talk about how each family member deals with 
both tragedies differently and how Dahlia wants to get to the bottom of what caused Andy's death. And each child is named after either a serial killer or the serial killer's nickname. That sounds right up my alley. I know. It really does (laughs) sound good. And it's been getting rave reviews. So I'm really excited to get to it. It comes out August 17th. I haven't heard of this one. I'm going to have to look it up. Yeah. Okay. The next, my my last one, I'm cheating ever so slightly. So I did start <laughs> reading it, but I have not finished it yet. And this is one that was just sent to me by a publisher rep. And I thought, well, this looks kind of cute. I'll, I'll pick it up. And it's called The Reading List by Sarah Nisha Adams. And the tropes in this book are, I think, specifically for me. This is like catnip wrapped up in a Hallmark movie wrapped up in cotton candy sitting next to a puppy in a basket. <laughs> but this, the story, actually, the only thing missing is a natural disaster. If it had a hurricane in it, this would be my perfect book. But uh, here's, here's, here's the setup. Widower Mukesh lives in a quiet village in West London after losing his beloved wife. He shops every Wednesday, goes to temple and worries about his granddaughter Priya who hides in her room reading while he spends his evenings watching nature documentaries. Then we have Alicia and she's a bright but anxious teenager working at a local library for the summer when she discovers a crumpled up piece of paper in the back of To Kill a Mockingbird. It's a list of novels she's never heard of before. Intrigued and a little bored with her slow job at the checkout desk, she impulsively decides to read every book on the list one after the other. As each story gives up its magic, the books transport Alicia from the painful reality she's facing at home. When Mukesh arrives at the library, desperate to forge a connection with his bookworm granddaughter, Alicia passes along the reading list, hoping it'll be a lifeline for him too. Slowly, the shared books create a connection between two lonely souls as fiction helps them escape their grief and everyday troubles to find joy again. So we have a curmudgeon, a lonely curmudgeon. We have an intergenerational story. We have a library and we have a love of reading. And many of the books on this reading list are some of my favorites. So I think this one's going to be a winner. Now tell me the name of that one again. The Reading List and by William Morrow, HarperCollins. Okay, I'm going to track that one down because that definitely sounds like it's right up my alley. It's very, very sweet. So far, and I can't, I can't attest to how it ends, but maybe a quarter of the way through, I'm really enjoying it. Well, good. You'll have to let me know when you're done. And my last one is Damnation Spring by Ash Davidson, and it comes out August 3rd. And the summary for it is, for generations, Rich Gunderson's family has chopped a livelihood out of the redwood forest along California's rugged coast. Now, Rich and his wife, Colleen, are raising their young son near Damnation Grove, a swath of ancient redwoods on which Rich's employer, Sanderson Timber Company, plans to make a killing. In 1977, with most of the forest cleared or protected, a grove-like damnation and beyond it, 24-7 Ridge is a logger's dream. But logging is dangerous work. So Rich ends up buying the company and wanting to protect his son because logging is such dangerous work, doesn't tell his wife. In the meantime, his wife, Colleen, has realized that some of the pesticides they've been using are most likely leading to women having miscarriages and other issues in the area. And so it's kind of at the, I guess, forefront of the time when people began to understand that some of these issues like logging and pesticides, while they obviously have positive effects and create jobs, there's a lot of negative that come with them. 
So I'm really looking forward to reading that one. And there's been a ton of buzz about it. And I'm excited to get started with it. I've heard a ton of buzz about this one as well. And this is another little subgenre I really love with the the logging industry and trees. You know, I loved Greenwood. I loved Greenwood too. You recommended that to me and I really enjoyed it. And Deep River. Did you read Deep River? Mm-mm. And uh, The Overstory is another great book about trees. So I saw some stuff written about The Overstory after I read Greenwood. And then the other one that you recommended to me that I bought but I haven't read yet is Harry's Trees. I loved Harry's trees. Right. I love all these tree stories also. And I also kind of think of them, it's not really climate fiction, but it's environmental fiction. And I, I like all those stories too that sort of debate some of these issues. Physically ache when you hear of these beautiful trees that are being cut down. So Absolutely. And poor women who, you know, have no idea that the air they're breathing or I guess stuff they're eating are, are leading to miscarrying. You know, they just can't understand why suddenly they can't hold on to their babies. And I think, oh, it's just so sad. But it sounds good. This is one that definitely all the publishers are talking about. So I, I anticipate this being a big seller. Well, Elizabeth, it is always so much fun to speak with you. And I have a longer list now to, to read before I turn my attention to the fall. But I'm really glad you came on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would greatly appreciate it. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard note.